0: together. Take your Bibles this morning. I want you to turn two places. First of all, put your finger in Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20. And once you have your place there, I also want you to look over to Romans chapter 14 with me this morning. Romans chapter 14. Joshua 20, Romans 14. We're making our way through the book of Joshua, seeing some of the highlights, seeing where God has brought the people of Israel. He has, we've, we've seen them come to the river Jordan, Uh, God prepared Joshua to step in into Moses' place. They've crossed the River Jordan. They've uh, established a memorial. They have conquered Jericho. They have dealt with sin. Uh, They have received their inheritance. They've had victory, and they are preparing to take the land that God has given to them And I want us to see a truth this morning in Joshua chapter 20. But before we get to that, I want you to be with me in Romans chapter 14. And I I want to address something, and I want to say this this morning because uh, there are a lot of issues um, that the Christians address and have some form of disagreement on. Um, Let me start with just a couple of basic principles this morning. Number one, if the Bible says something is wrong, it's wrong. Now, y'all did just a little bit better than the 8 o'clock crowd did, so I'm going to say it one more time. That ought to be a non... That's, that's just a foundational... If the Bible says that something is wrong, then it's wrong. Okay, that's a little bit better. And the Bible, that, that, I affirmed that this morning. If the Bible says that we are to do something, if the Bible says something is right, then it's right. Okay, we got that established. With those two things, there are, however, some issues and some decisions, and some choices that we are faced with that the Bible does not give a clear precept about how we're to conduct ourselves. And so, on these issues, uh, there are some some Christian there's some Christian liberty. Now, what generally happens is there's about three groups of people on most of these issues. There's a group over here that thinks you should not do something, or you should not choose this, or you should not say this, or you should not go there. And then you got the group over here that's all on this side, and they're, they're the exact opposite, and it's my Christian liberty, and you're being a legalist. And then in the middle, you got a great big crowd of people that just says, Huh? They're sort of, we're, they're just not oblivious to what's going on, they don't even know there's an issue. The problem with it is not that you on either side of that. The problem is, is that the people on this side begin to look at the people on that side, and they begin to say, "You're wrong because you don't agree with me." The people on this side begin to look at the people on that side, and say, "Well, you're wrong, and you ought to be doing what I think we should do." And the people in the middle are still standing there saying, "Uh." Uh-huh. How many hers do we have this morning? A lot of her. There are various issues, and I'm not going to start naming some of them, and there's some that are pretty current, where there are people who think with their perception, their understanding. Let me let me just give you this. It is possible for born again, spirit filled Christians to come to different understandings of different situations here's what you need to do. If you, with a spirit-guided, scripture-saturated conscience, can come to the place where you say, I don't think I should say this, do this, go there, then don't. But don't do it because it fits what you wanted to do to start with. Don't do it because it's a bandwagon thing to do, and there are people that do that. Now, there's some, guys, there's some people in this group that they are following their conscience, they're following the Holy Spirit. If you're on this side and you think it's okay to say, go, do, whatever the topic is, then if you've allowed the Holy Spirit to shape your conscience on that, then do it with God's blessing. But don't stand there and point at the other side. And above all, do not, God, help you if you get on social media and attack those who feel differently on either direction inside. Now, I know I just touched the, the, say, the patron saint of this age when I said social media. Let me tell you what the church needs. And I preface this by saying this is sarcasm, okay? So straight up front, you know I'm being sarcastic, okay? I have to do that because some people just have got no sense of humor. Let me tell you what the church needs. More than the church needs revival, more than the church needs the power of the Holy Spirit, more than the church needs to return to biblical truth, the church needs one more issue to divide us over. Don't we? Don't you think that would help? We don't have enough. We need more. And what's happening is we've got Christians that are bickering and fighting. Let me give you two verses, two statements from Scripture that I think speak to this. Now, you can disagree with me on this, but these verses tell me that you get the right to disagree with me on that, and I'll say that's fine. You've got the right to be wrong. (laughs) Look in verse 4. Let me back up a minute. Verse 2, one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eats herbs. Now, this is speaking about a specific situation where there's disagreement over should we eat things offered to idols, should we eat no meat at all, what should we do? And one does one thing and one thing does another. Look at this statement, let not him that eats despise him that eats not. He doesn't say, don't eat or eat. He says, don't despise the person that disagrees with you. My point this morning is not which side you should take on certain issues. That's where Christian liberty comes in. Now, if the Bible says it's wrong, there is no Christian liberty. If the Bible says it's right, there is no Christian liberty. But if it's this area of Christian liberty, don't despise him that eats not. So this person over here can't say, legalist. Yeah, I ought to be able to do this. This, Here's the reason why, and you're wrong for opposing me. Notice what he goes on to say. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eats. Person on this side, don't you judge the person on that side. If they came to that point of view, if they made that choice based on a spirit-guided, scripture-saturated conscience, then that's their choice. Don't judge them. Boy, it's gotten quiet all of a sudden. Look in verse 5. Wait, wait, let me get the, let me get the last part of it, in the middle part of verse 4. Do you see this statement? To his own master he stands or false. To his own master he stands or false. Who am I going to stand before for what I chose to do and chose not to do? Not you. And I'm going to be honest, therefore I don't really care. I'm going to stand before God. Father down, he's going to say, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. One man, verse 5, esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Here's, Here's my phrase, and I'll quote this. If you ask me my opinion on this, here's what you're going to hear out of my mouth. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Be persuaded in your own mind. Don't jump on a bandwagon. Don't do it because it's what you wanted to do to start with, but be persuaded in your mind that that is what God said for you to do or not to do, and then don't let anybody change your mind on it. Let the Scripture govern it. Our minds, our consciences must be governed by the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit of God. And so therefore, let's focus on, on what we're supposed to focus on and let's quit shooting at each other preacher what topic are you talking about what do you think I'm talking about that's probably it because there are any number what's the topic of the day will be different tomorrow and next week and let every person be persuaded in their mind because there is something that is of greater importance for us to be focused on. This world doesn't need to be straightened out on all the issues we think they ought to be straightened out on. The world needs Jesus Christ. The world needs the message of the gospel. And I'm not saying we shouldn't think through these topics. I'm not saying we shouldn't think through these issues and come to biblically sound, spirit-guided decisions about them but I'm saying that we should stop judging and we should stop despising those who disagree with us and we need to get to the message of Judges or Joshua chapter 20 because when a person is desperate for life, they don't need to see us shooting each other. They need to get to the city of refuge. Now look to Joshua chapter 20. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel, saying, appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that kills any person unawares and unwittingly, this is involuntary manslaughter, may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he that does flee unto one of those cities shall stand at the entering of the gate of the city, and shall declare in his calls in, his, declare his calls in the ears of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city unto them, give him a place that he may dwell among them. And if the avenger of blood pursue after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer up into his hand because he smote his neighbor unwittingly and hated him not before time. And he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation of judgment, until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come into his own city and unto his own house, unto the city from whence he fled. I am glad that I have been freed by the death of the high priest." I want you to just imagine this morning in this setting and to understand what is taking place and what is set up. And this is a very practical plan that God gives to his people for there to be justice and for there to be law in in his nation. I want you to just imagine this morning that a, a Jewish man, an Israeli man by the name of Abez, gets up early in the morning and he gets his tools together, he gets his cutting tools, he gets his axe, he gets his saws, And he prepares to go out into the forest with a group of his neighbors and friends. And they're going to work together to saw some, cut some trees down. Maybe they need to build a fence. Maybe they need to repair a fence or a wall for their herds and their flocks. And so they go out into the woods to cut these trees down. They work together and they're laboring and they're sawing and they're cutting. And they they stop to take a break and they talk and they enjoy their lunch together. And they have the entire day their neighbors and their friends and as they are laboring, as it gets close to, close to sun going down, Abez is using his axe to cut a tree down. And he's working and he's almost to the point, this is perhaps the last tree of the day he's ready to cut down. And as he chops that tree, he's ready to take nearly the last one, watch that tree fall. And as he swings his axe, perhaps through the day as he has worked and labored, that axe head on that, on that axe handle has worked its way loose. And as he brings the axe into the tree, the axe head flies from the end of the axe and hits his best friend, his neighbor, and he hits him in the head. He falls to the ground. Abaz is concerned, of course, and he rushes to him to see if he's okay, calling his name and seeking to see if he's okay. And he gets to him and he realizes that his friend is dead. This is not an enemy. This is not someone that he despises. This is not someone that he laid in wait to try to ambush and take his life. This is someone that he cares about. It's his neighbor, his friend. He realizes, however, that his life is in danger because there is not a central government to execute God's plan of justice for the nation of Israel, God has established that there is what is called an avenger of blood. It's the same term that is used of the the kinsman redeemer. We know the kinsman redeemer from the book of Ruth, as Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, and what a great demonstration of God's grace as he redeems a piece of property, and he he redeems Ruth, and what a powerful demonstration it is of grace but he's also part of his responsibility is to be the executioner when someone is murdered you see there's not a government to do this and so the family has to do this perhaps emotion is involved perhaps anger is involved but primarily it is a an act of justice for him to pursue the person who has killed his family member and put him to death and abaz knows that this is going to happen. He knows, probably he knows the person who will be coming after him. And so he rushes to his house. It's getting close to dark and he he goes into his house and he hugs his wife and he hugs his children. He doesn't know when he'll see them again. And he gathers his possessions. He gathers just what he can in a hurry and just in a moment. And he rushes from the house knowing that before he gets out of his yard, the avenger of blood could be there. He follows path that he knows and he's concerned because he knows that these paths, these are not well paved roads in the back country of Israel and he knows that something could happen, a tree could be across his path and he might be slow to get across and every second that he loses is a second that that avenger of blood is hot on his trail. But Once he gets to the main road, he realizes, he looks at the road and he sees that it's wide. And he also notices that it's clear there's no stones that have blocked his path and there's, no, there's nothing there to hinder. He sees that he has a clear path. If he can just make it to one of these six cities of refuge, he knows that he has hope. He knows that he is safe. And so he travels just as fast as he can. He travels all through the night. And he travels all into the next day, hardly stopping to catch a breath, hardly stopping to get a drink of water. He doesn't sleep because he knows that the avenger of blood will not rest. And he pushes hard and he notices as he travels along, there's rocks beside the road that have the word painted on them, refuge. And he knows he's headed in the right direction. Before sundown the next day, he arrives at the gate of the city of refuge. Refuge. And the elders of the city are there because that's where the court is. That's where the the trials take place. And he calls to them. He asks for entrance into the city. Why should we let you into this city? And he tells them his account. He tells them his story. And they are obligated to bring him in to give him protection. Perhaps shortly after he arrives, the avenger of blood shows up at the gate. Give me Abez. He has committed murder. And by the law, by justice, he should die. They say, no, you can't have him. He's protected. He is in a city of refuge. Until he has a trial, later he will be put on trial before the elders of the closest city to where the act took place. And he will be tried, and he'll be given a fair trial to determine is he innocent or is he guilty. If he is found guilty in that trial, this system provided opportunity for him to have that trial, to not be judged unjustly. And so he has tried, and as he presents his, his case, he has eyewitnesses who were there, who knew, he has character witnesses who knew that he was a friend of this man, that there was no hatred beforehand. He knows that this was not planned, that this was a complete accident. And they speak on his behalf, and he is found to be innocent. But he still took a life. And so God says, you have to stay. You can live safely, but you have to stay in that city of refuge until the high priest at that time dies. And then you are free. You are free from any guilt. You are free from any judgment of the past. You have been freed. What a a powerful illustration God gives us in this, this design. It is a very practical design because it is to guarantee that there will be justice. God's law is not just pointing ahead, it was very practical for the people of that time to make sure that they were treated with justice and fairness and they were treated righteously and that there was no innocent blood shed. In fact, one of the judgments that God would bring upon Israel because of their hands that shed innocent blood. And so God set up this system so that the innocent could get a fair trial, that they could be treated fairly. The cities were placed within a day's journey of anywhere in the country. Six cities that anybody could get to. There was plenty for whosoever will. Anybody that needed to could come. And the ways were made wide and were to be kept clear so that there was no obstructions. The path was clear to come to the place of hope and the place of refuge. And the signs were there to point the way so that everything was provided so that if a person had committed this act, taken this life, they had the opportunity to come to the city of refuge. And they could be there and they could live until they had their trial. And then until the death of the high priest. I I don't think it's hard for us to see what this does for us what this points us to, especially on this day when we begin a week of celebrating Jesus Christ going to the cross. Because in this account, it's easy for us to see the mercy and grace. It's easy for us to head to that point. But I want you to notice that, first of all, there is God's justice in this account. God is a God of justice. Now, a lot of people are not comfortable with that truth. They're not comfortable with that. I'm glad that God is a just God. Now, I'm glad that I don't get justice, but I'm glad that God is a just God. God is a God who will take what is wrong. I don't think it's hard for us. Maybe I know we just probably don't agree on 100% on everything, none of us in here, but I believe we can all agree that this world is not as it should be. There are some things wrong with this world. I'm glad that one of these days God, who is a God of righteousness, is going to set all things to right. What is wrong will be made right. We look at the book of Revelation and I love what God does there. It's not just about this is going to happen and it's, fun to think about what's going to happen in the future and identify this person and identify this beast and what the bump on the nose of the seventh head in the 13th chapter is going to represent. It's not all about that. It's about God setting things to right. And I'm glad that he's going to do that. God is a God of justice. God's justice demands that there be punishment for sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. And so in this this avenger of blood, in this kinsman redeemer, embodied in the same person that is such a great demonstration of grace is a great demonstration of justice and judgment that comes from God. God is holy, and he must deal with sin. He must deal with what is wrong in this world. He He loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us this way. And so God has a plan. Look, it is not right that if someone was to commit this act that they would get away with it. Think perhaps of someone who would be so devious as to plan a murder that would look like they were innocent and they would get away with it, but God, doesn't ha- God has a plan to cover that and he has this, this death that is going to follow. In the person of the avenger of blood, we see the justice of God. And God's justice is bearing down on the sinful soul. We are born under the justice of God. We are born under the penalty of death. Why? Because we are sinners and we have sinned. This morning, I want you to know that God loves you. But first, you have to understand that without justice, there is no need for mercy. And so the justice of God is here, but there is the mercy of God. Think about all that God does. The six cities, in the the plenteousness of the cities, in the number of the cities, there is the openness of God's grace. Jesus Christ is available to all. The mercy is available. It is by God's mercy. That he allows that there is an opportunity for the person who has committed that. yes, taking that life was wrong. Even if I did it accidentally, I have done something that was wrong. Life is precious. It is important. It is valuable. And I've taken this life. God says, here's the plan. Here's the path, here's the road that is wide, not the road that leads to destruction, the broad road that leads to destruction, but here is the path that is clear so that you can come to refuge, you can come to hope. I want you to know this morning that God's mercy is extended to you. God in His mercy has withheld what His justice demands, and it meets in the third thing of God's nature that we see here, and that is His grace the grace of God, the plan, the path to get there, that's all God's mercy. But that city of refuge that is there and that openness, that hope that is there, that is the grace of God that is bestowed to enter in. And what a a powerful time to think about this because there is no greater illustration of all three of these than the cross. This week we will think of Christ coming into Jerusalem and passing up the Via Dolorosa on his way to the cross. And it is on the cross that God's justice is satisfied. The wages of sin, what we deserve, what we have earned is death. We deserve death. It's not a matter of, Do I do something? No, we are are sinners. We are natural born sinners. And yet the justice of God was satisfied when his son, Jesus Christ, went to the cross and he suffered all that he endured and all that he suffered. And six hours on that cross as he went from one suffering to the next until he finally cries those words, it is finished, it is done. And it is in that that the justice of God is satisfied. God, in his love, could never say, I'll ignore their sin. I love them so much, I'll ignore what they have done. Nor in his justice could he say, I will have punishment on my creation, on those that I love, and ignore his love. But I'm glad that God's justice and God's grace and God's mercy have met together in one place at the cross, in one person, the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was hanging on that cross and he says it is finished, he was saying that God's master plan that involved his wrath and his justice and his mercy and his grace has been completed and it has been fulfilled. It is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. What does the Bible tell us? You know this verse, many of you. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge. What have we done? We have fled for refuge. Literally, we have run for our life. Let me tell you this morning that apart from Jesus Christ, we are running for our lives. We are a fugitive from the justice of God. But God, in His mercy and His grace, has provided in the cross of Christ, in Jesus Christ, He is our refuge. He says, we have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to do what? To lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Abaz, as he runs for the city of refuge, he's never been there perhaps. He, he's only heard from the Levites that God has established this and that hope is there if I can just get to the city of refuge, if I can just get there. And many people today are running and they're, they're looking for that hope And they need to hear not the message that things that we're fighting about and the things that we're distracted about. And very often the distraction becomes a greater hindrance than the things we're distracted about. Because it draws our minds, it draws our hearts away from the thing that is hope. Those that are pressing and looking for the hope that that is set before them and that hope, and he's running for his life, and he he knows that if he can just get there, he has hope. He's never seen it. He doesn't know about it, but God's word has been given to him that the city of refuge is there, and Christ is our city of refuge. Christ is not only our city of refuge, Christ is our high priest. You see, I might make it to the city of refuge, but then I live there carrying the guilt. I'm Essentially, not on house arrest, but on city arrest. I dare not leave that city until the death of the high priest. The guilt of what I've done binds me, but I am glad that Jesus has done more than just deliver me from the justice and wrath of God. He has delivered me from the guilt of my past because my high priest died for me and he atoned for my sin, and I'm free. And I have a strong consolation because of the hope that is laid before me. I'm glad not only that our high priest better than what these high priests did, they just died. Ours died and rose again. And he lives forever. The freedom that we have in the city of refuge. This morning, you may be searching for hope. You don't even really realize what you're doing. Some people are searching for, they're searching for hope in so many terrible places. Some are looking for hope in deviant behavior. Some are looking for hope. They're trying to find satisfaction in substance abuse and alcohol and drugs. They're trying to follow the path that they think will bring them hope. Let me tell you that those paths will not bring them to the city of refuge. And this morning, if that's the path you're on, you need to be pointed to the city of refuge. And so this morning, I want to point you to Jesus. I want to point you to the cross. Because it is Jesus Christ who is the one that frees us from our guilt. He is the one that died to satisfy the wrath of God. He is the one who died because the extended mercy of God. And he is the one who died to bestow on us the wonderful, matchless grace of God. And this morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, please do not leave here today. Run. Run for your life. Run to the city of refuge. Because there is hope. Will you bow your heads with me this morning?